Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, August the 3rd, 2022. It is currently 1231 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where I still want to discuss with you the disunity of Christianity. I still want to talk about it. I don't know if anyone else wants to talk about it, but I still want to talk about the disunity of Christianity because it's an issue, it's something that should bother you, and it's something we have to try to figure out because the reality is Christianity is, well, (laughs) divided. There is disunity everywhere, yet we have certain things in the Bible that seems to call for something different. So we're going to try to take this conversation and advance it a little bit, and hopefully it will prove to be beneficial to you and to me. And let's briefly remind ourselves how this all began. It all began with me reaching over, picking up my iPad, opening up the Pocket Cast podcast app, looking for the first Christian podcast that I could find, hitting play. And well, you remember, this is what I heard. Right. This is what I heard. I was trying to. I was trying to figure out what are we going to talk about, and I just decided I'm just going to pick at random the first topic that I came across on a podcast app, and this is the topic that we stumbled upon. This is exactly how it sounded. Here we go. Just a quick reminder. Listen carefully. Would you say that Christians are characterized more by unity or by? Division. Well, critics would often say division. I mean, by some counts, there are tens of thousands of denominations. How many different Christian churches are there where you live? Well, the town where I live is a fairly small rural community, population about 4,000, and I can count over a dozen Christian churches just in my town a Wesleyan church, a Congregational, Baptist, Nazarene, Catholic. Lutheran, United Methodist, Reformed, Christian Reformed, Alliance, Assembly of God, Independent Bible, a Bible Believers Church, a Vineyard Church, and that's probably not even all of them. Well, for our next two podcasts on Discover the Word, the group's going to be talking about some advice from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans about getting along. Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along? That's what the Discover the Word podcast wanted to discuss. They did so for two weeks. Why can't we all just get along? Now, they do a good job of acknowledging, well, there's thousands, maybe tens of thousands of denominations. And look at all the different churches in my little small town. And there's all kinds of churches. There, Christianity appears to be very divided. There, there appears to be very little unity. Disunity seems to be the norm. At least that's what critics say. Now, their approach was, okay, it appears to be disunity everywhere, but let's just look to Romans 12, 13, and 14. Let's look at some principles in these chapters and 
Let's not really worry about the reality of this disunity. Let's convince ourselves that if we just take some of these principles found in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15, that somehow the disunity will disappear. No, they, they really never actually dealt with the problem. They, they acknowledged the problem and then just said, okay, stop looking at it. Here, look at these verses. Focus on this and we'll forget about the disunity. Well, no, no one forgot about the disunity because the disunity has to be talked about. Thousands upon thousands of denominations, Christians not agreeing on really any subject. We don't even agree on the proper way to interpret the Bible. We don't agree on baptism, Lord's Supper, church structure. We so many disagreements when it comes to the subject of salvation itself. There is so much disagreement. But in light of that reality, that's just a reality. No matter, no matter how many different uh, little ideas we come up with to distract everyone from that reality, it's almost like, okay, look, everyone, you see all of that disunity? Okay, look away really quick. Look away. Look over here. See? See? See, in reality, uh, that disunity doesn't really mean anything because of this. And all we try to do is distract ourselves from the very real reality that should bother us. And the reason it should bother us is as you look at all the different churches, all the different denominations, all of the arguing, debating, and the division, as you look at all of that, you have to be painfully aware of this verse, John chapter 17, verse 21, where Jesus himself prayed that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus himself, the eternal son of God, prayed that we would all be one. That's the prayer. Yet 2,000 years of church history, we are not one. Now, Christians have tried to come up with ways to answer this and try to say, well, in reality, we're one. We're, we're one at least theoretically, right? right? There's one body of Christ. So no matter what our doctrinal differences are, we are, we are actually unified. But that's a unity that actually means nothing because that's a unity of the quote unquote invisible body of Christ where we never meet we don't actually see each other. We don't have to agree on anything. We don't have to work out any of our differences. We just say, hey, see, in reality, we're one, even though we are divided and disagree on every subject. And we don't even agree on exactly who is in the body of Christ or who isn't in the body of Christ. That, that makes us feel better. But it's a unity that supposedly exists that has no practical ramifications. So what do we do with this disunity? Well, we've talked about this now in a number of episodes. I'm not going to go back through everything we discussed. I offered what where I think the focus should be. Um, some people agree. Some people have disagreed. But even those who have disagreed really have not come up with any real meaningful, tangible, here's unity. They, they, it's a very theoretical unity that people have pointed to, just a very kind of like, it's there, but it doesn't really mean anything in a practical way. And I just, I'm sorry, that just, I don't, I don't see how that really answers uh, the problem. But what we're going to do today is I, in fact, I'm going to reach over here really quick. 
I just went, I did a random search. I did a random search. I just typed in John 17, 21 and grabbed the very first sermon that popped up. The very first sermon that popped up. And the name of this sermon is, Whatever Happened to Christian Unity? Whatever Happened to Christian Unity? Well, that's a very good question. Whatever happened to Christian Unity? What, what happened to it? Now, we, we, could, uh, we could look at this from a historical perspective, and I could offer probably some thoughts that would make it no one happy, but I thought, you know what? Here's a sermon we're just going to listen to and see what they have to say in regards to John 17, 21, and well, I don't know if we're going to agree. I don't know if we're going to disagree. I don't know if it's going to be good. I don't know if it's going to be bad because I just randomly did a search, grabbed the audio and said, let's listen to it together. Let's review it in real time. So this is not something I've listened to in, in, in advance to, to rehearse my response. Let's see if they have a good solution to John 17, 21 in light of the fact that Jesus prayed that we be one, that we would be one in reality, we are not one. We haven't been one. Christianity has been divided for a very long time, and the division and the disagreements just continue to increase week after week, year after year, and there is no, no fixing it. There isn't any fixing it. So I love to continue to listen to people put forth their ideas but I, I, to be honest, I find it somewhat humorous that no matter that for some weird reason, people can come up with the most vague solution to this problem. And the average Christian is more than willing to just embrace it and accept it as an actual workable solution. When the reality is that there, there's nothing, it, it doesn't mean anything. How do you, I mean, what, how does it? How do you deal with it? You read Jesus saying, hey, we, we should be one. Pray that we would be one. You know that we're not one. You, look, you drive around the city where you live. You see church after church after church. You talk to Christians on social media. You know all the division, all the disagreement, all the fighting, all the arguing. What do you, how do you handle it? Well, let's see what this sermon offers as a solution. Here we go. I've enjoyed doing the Reformation conferences because everywhere I go, and I've, I've spoken quite a bit on the doctrine of justification by faith, which if you know me, you know that is my favorite subject to preach on. And I get a lot of feedback from people who say, never really understood that doctrine. So I'm glad for the opportunity for that doctrine, which is the heart of the gospel, to be brought back to the forefront of Protestant discussion, I think it's made some of our Catholic neighbors a little bit uneasy because in the last couple of weeks, I've had this outpouring of comments on Twitter and online from uh, Roman Catholic followers who chide me about the lack of unity among Protestants. That's their go-to argument. They say, well, sure, Luther started a Reformation, but look at the results. There's thousands of denominations. Whatever happened to the unity Christ prayed for in John 17? And uh, that has been such a persistent complaint that I decided, let's talk about that in Grace Life today. And so I want to go to John 17. While you're turning there, I'll just 
tell you some of my thinking on this. When I was first converted to Christ, it was a total change of heart. And one of the things that actually surprised me the most about it was that I found suddenly I had a genuine love for Christians. And if I met someone who professed faith in Christ, I sensed an immediate bond with that person. It was an awareness of brotherhood. And <laughs> Okay. Now, if you don't know who's speaking, that's Phil Johnson from Grace, uh, Grace to You, uh, Grace Life Church, uh, Grace to You, John MacArthur's ministry. Um, I don't, I don't know what to say here. Um, I, I put it this way: it's one thing to say. This is this is what I'm going to say here because I got to be careful. Well, I mean, it was a public, it was a public thing. So I guess I, I could I could share it because it was very public. It was right there for the world to see. It wasn't something that happened in private. Um, I just think it's funny. It's easy to say when I became a Christian, uh, I, there was an immediate transformation and I found a love for fellow believers. I found a, a bond. I found unity for fellow believers. I just found a kinsmanship with, with fellow believers. It's so easy to say that. And then turn around and act like a complete and utter jerk when uh, you disagree with someone. I just know this, that I had a, Phil Johnson was greatly influential in my ministry, right? I learned a lot from him. Uh, never met him, but learned a lot from his, you know, his writings and just different things, different advice he gave to, for ministry, different things. And I, I took a lot of that advice and, and learned a lot and been very grateful. So I never had much of an, any, any major interaction with him. And then there, the, someone in Hollywood or a number of people in Hollywood went around and they, they made a video of them basically, I guess, lip syncing or singing the words to Imagine by John Lennon. All right. And in everyone, for some weird reasons, Christians lost their minds and, and conservatives lost their mind. These liberals singing this stupid song, imagined by John Lennon, it's ridiculous and it's ungodly and everyone losing their minds. And uh, Phil Johnson had posted something in regards to the lyrics. And I just basically just mentioned, hey, I, I don't know if you're correctly understanding the lyrics. There were interviews about what exactly John Lennon was trying to say there. And I think sometimes people are kind of misinterpreting the lyrics. And, and I tried to just tried to offer, you know, I think in a roundabout way. And I even said, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with the philosophy of the song, but I think people are misrepresenting the philosophy of the song. And I just tried to offer like a, a kind of like a, Hey, here, here's, here's some thoughts based off, I don't know, the actual songwriter giving some of their thoughts. I just think if we're going to disagree with the song, we have to at least represent it in an accurate and fair way, right? It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if I disagree with the satanic Bible. It doesn't matter if I disagree with Islam. It doesn't matter if I agree with Catholicism. We have a responsibility to accurately voice that disagreement or that, how can we say it, that that disapproval. In other words, we just, we have to accurately represent something we disagree with. I, th I think that's fair. So that's all I was doing. The next thing I know is I'm being attacked. The next thing I know, he's looking up the, our church website, attacking and questioning the validity of our church and that we really don't believe in the in-depth teaching of God's word simply because I disagreed with 
not, not, I didn't disagree. I simply pointed out that those involved with the writing of the song gave somewhat of a different understanding than you put forth on, in your, on, on social media and on the internet. Next thing you know, I was being attacked. I was being attacked. My church was being attacked. Our, 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 our commitment to in-depth teaching of God's word was being attacked. Somehow uh, there was something wrong with me. There was possibly something wrong with my salvation simply because I was like, I think we need to be more, we, we need an accurate representation, an accurate statement about the meaning of the song Imagine because I don't think we're being fair. And I was attacked. He didn't show love. He didn't show kinsmanship. He didn't show a bond to a fellow believer. In fact, he basically called my Christianity into question simply because I was like, well, wait a minute. So it's a little, it's a little frustrating to go, Hey, you know, you became a Christian and immediately you loved fellow believers because I, I couldn't believe the way I was treated and attacked, not even for really disagreeing. Just simply saying, mm, I think there's, I think you're not quite understanding the lyric to the song. And, and, and I stated multiple times, I'm not defending the philosophy of the song. I just think it needs to be accurately understood. So this is somewhat humorous to hear him go, Hey, when I became a believer, boom, it was instant love and, and I bond with fellow believers. Well, unless someone disagrees with him. And then there's no love, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's just attack and derision and calling into question my entire ministry simply because I was like, I don't know if we're accurately representing the words of a song here, which just demonstrates the disunity within Christianity. That even if you, we can't even have a normal conversation without someone being attacked and their, and their, their entire Christianity called into question because we, because someone is trying to go, wait a minute, I, I think, I think maybe you're not accurately understanding the song. And it's really frustrating considering how much of my life I've given to, well, interpreting lyrics and listening to music and understanding music and reading about music and studying music and what, but, um, so this is a little, I, I didn't realize who the sermon was by, uh, but it, um, well, I do find this interesting that he's, he's going to talk about how his love. Now, of course, maybe he was having a bad day and obviously that it needs to be forgiven and obviously it needs to just be, you know, it, it, that was something in the past and just move on. But it's still to this day very just disheartening because I was very I was greatly hurt by it because I'm like, here's someone who I look up to in the ministry, someone who's had a positive influence on me and my first time ever having interaction, boom, I'm attacked and uh, I'm called in my, basically my salvation is called into question and my entire ministry is called into question simply because I'm like, I think we need probably be a little bit more fair in how we understand what this song was trying to say. It, it's just, that's how... Sometimes it works within the world of Christianity. So this this just may I I mean it happened right there online. So it was it was I mean again nothing. It wasn't private conversation. I'm not sharing anything private. It was public, um, and and then all of his all of his followers then attacked me, um, which was just insane. So I had to finally just block and 
and just delete and just basically move on because it was just it was just ridiculous how everyone started piling on and and there was like there was no hope i i had it was the most i'm i'm telling you i i was so scarred by what happened that i could not believe that here's a minister who's just utterly attacking someone simply because I'm trying to point out, I don't know if you accurately are understanding the lyrics to this song. And it's just, it was bizarre, but it just shows how, but, but at the same time, we do those kinds of things. Well, we pat ourselves on the back and say, no, we love fellow believers. We love, we, we, we love fellow believers. It's, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's so easy to claim some kind of unity and some kind of love for believers when we clearly don't demonstrate it in really practical ways. That That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to back this up a little bit. Here we go. A couple of weeks, I've had this outpouring of comments on Twitter and online from uh, Roman Catholic followers who chide me about the lack of unity among Protestants. That's their go-to argument. They say, well, sure, Luther started a reformation, but look at the results. There's thousands of denominations. Whatever happened to the unity Christ prayed for in John 17? And uh, that has been such a persistent complaint that I decided, let's talk about that in Grace Life. Yes, it has been a persistent complaint. I agree. That after the Protestant Reformation, it's turned into thousands and thousands of different groups, everyone attacking each other, everyone believes that they're right, everyone condemning one another. That is a persistent complaint because it's a reality that should bother everyone. Now, Protestants get mad when Catholics say that and like, well, you, you think there's actual unity in the Catholic Church and we'll look for any signs of disunity within the Catholic Church to make us feel better. I don't know why we take it, why, why we get so offended. We have to own it. The Protestant world is a divisive, broken concept when it comes to anything related to Christian unity. There isn't any Christian unity. There isn't. And so I want to go to John 17. While you're turning there, I'll just tell you some of my thinking on this. When I was first converted to Christ, it was a total change of heart. And one of the things that actually surprised me the most about it was that I found suddenly I had a genuine love for Christians. And if I met someone who professed faith in Christ, I sensed an immediate bond with that person. It was an awareness of brotherhood and unity in Christ that I, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before, and it was spontaneous. It wasn't something I, I tried to achieve. It was just the natural response of my heart to fellow believers. And I think most of you know what I'm talking about. You've had the experience of meeting someone, and when you find out that person is a believer in Christ, there's an instant bond. You know, you discover that you already have more in common than some people have in common with their flesh and blood brothers and sisters. And it's that bond of fellowship and mutual love between believers that the Apostle John is describing in 1 John 3.14 when he says, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That was the Apostle John's 
one of the main points he's making to people struggling with assurance. Do you love the brethren? That's one of the signs that you're truly saved. It was John the Apostle who also wrote this familiar passage that someone set to a little tune. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And we hear those comments and truths like them all the time. We know that love for the brethren is a crucial test of genuine faith. And the apostle in those texts is saying quite simply that if your faith in Christ is real, you will love fellow believers. And if you don't love fellow believers, you're not really born again. But loving one another is not only a natural disposition for the Christian, it's also a duty. It's a responsibility that Christ has given to us. In fact, it's a commandment that we receive directly from Christ himself, the new commandment he gave that augments and sums up much of God's moral law. And in John 13, verses 34 and 35, you read these familiar words from Christ. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And so there, Jesus not only commands us to love one another, but he also indicates that our whole testimony before a watching world depends on that mutual love. Love for the brethren is therefore a high and holy obligation. And that brings us to the passage that I want to look at this morning. John chapter 17, we'll look at verses 20 through 26. These verses are the concluding section of what is the longest recorded prayer of Christ. And this, of course, is his high priestly prayer. This he prayed on the night he was betrayed. And on the timeline in your mind, just know that this falls between the upper room discourse and now, we, we could get into a whole discussion, but they, he goes with the, the basic idea, like a lot of Christians do, that the way you know you're saved is because you love the brethren, you love fellow Christians. And if you don't show love for fellow Christians, then you demonstrate that you were never saved. Now, my, my question is, look at Christianity. Just, just uh, Again, we just have to be honest. Look at Christianity at large. Not only is Christianity characterized by disunity, you're going to tell me that Christianity is characterized by love for one another? Give me a break. I, I just think that that's, that's just so, uh, you know, so then uh, no one is saved because we do not uh, love like Christ. Exactly. Because we, we don't love like that. That this is exactly where the, this, this is the, the, and I know what some of those verses appear to be saying. I know those verses appear to be saying, Hey, if you don't love, then you are not saved, but we would, no one would be able to say they're saved. But I, I just, I have to, that's why I had to share that story at the beginning. This is a man who literally attacked me and was completely attacking, rude, dismissive, just hateful simply because I was like, I don't know if you completely agree with these lyrics. I don't know if you completely understand these lyrics. And instead of saying, oh, okay, well, I'm not a big music guy or I haven't spent a lot of time. Well, can, can we talk about it? Like having an actual conversation with me, but it was immediate attack, destroy, then look up my church website, call into question my entire ministry, all because I dared 
go say, mm, I think maybe these lyrics are, are, are understood a little bit. Where, where, where did that demonstrate love? I, I get so tired of the people who say, you have to do this to prove you're saved. And they don't even can't even realize when they fail to do the very thing they're telling everyone else that they're supposed to do. Christianity is not only is it not characterized by unity, Christianity is definitely not characterized by love because so many times we fall so very short of it. He fell short of it in his response to me. I have fallen short of it a million different ways in my Christian life. He may have only fallen short once. I've fallen short a million times. No one loves the way we are supposed to love. No one loves the way we are called to love. We fall short of it. And this unity has to be more than we just love each other and, and, and word like, you know, oh, well, I'm, I, you know what? I got saved and I just had a genuine love for everyone. Like, no, no, no. It's remember if our understanding of first Corinthians 13 is correct. Love is not just what we say. Love is what we do. Right. So it doesn't matter how much you claim you love fellow believers. What do you do to demonstrate that love for fellow believers? But this unity has to be more than simply us saying that we love fellow believers. We're supposed to be unified. So th th this is just raising a lot of questions. But let's let's just see. Let's see what his solution is to this unity um, or lack thereof. Jesus' agony in the garden immediately after that, Jesus probably paused somewhere on the route from the upper room to Gethsemane to pray this prayer. And John 14, 31 says they had left the upper room. John 18, verse 1 says they had not yet crossed the Kidron Valley. So they must have been standing somewhere outside Jerusalem's walls, maybe right under the Temple Mount, because that's where this route would go. And verse 1 says, these things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven. And we can't go through the whole, the whole chapter. I can't read the entire thing or we'd be here all day. But I want to focus only on the closing section of it, but let's see if we can establish a context by kind of wide-angle look while you've got it open on your laps. Just look at this prayer, and here's a threefold outline, a three-point outline of the whole chapter. Jesus begins, first of all, by praying for God's glory. That's verses 1 through 5. And of course, this is in perfect accordance with the pattern he gave the disciples in the Lord's Prayer. A recognition of God's glory always should precede any personal petitions that we might have. But then next in verses 6 through 19, a longer section, he prays for his disciples. He prays about their knowledge of the Word, verses 6 through 9. He prays about their perseverance, verses 10 through 12. He prays that they will be filled with joy, verse 13. He prays for divine protection for them, verses 14 and 15. He prays that they will be sanctified, verses 16 through 17, and also verse 19. And he prays for their missionary work, verse 18. And then finally in verse 20, he turns his attention beyond the disciples, and he prays for the rest of us. He says in verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. And, of course, that's us. That prayer embraces all believers of all time. It gathers up every request Jesus 
has just prayed for the 12, and it applies all of those requests to you and to me. So this is the high priestly prayer of Christ. This is a sample of what he is praying for us in heaven right now. It gives us a window here into Christ's present ministry for us. You know that he's right now offering prayers just like this on our behalf in heaven in the presence of God's throne room. That's what he's doing right now. Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's making intercession for us. And what you see in this prayer is what Christ is praying for us even now. He prays for our security. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our spiritual success. Hebrews 7.25 is saying that the intercessory work of Christ is what guarantees that our salvation is forever. Talk about spiritual security. And this morning, I want to take a look at this closing section of John 17. After the words of verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. After that, his prayer has one theme and one theme only, and that theme is Christian unity. It's what he's praying for. He prays, verses 21 through 26, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, the fact that so much of Jesus' high priestly prayer is devoted to unity, praying for our unity with one another, makes this subject of unity extremely significant. If Christian unity was such a high priority for Christ, it should certainly be one of the primary concerns for every Christian. And in this prayer we get a clear glimpse of what is really on the heart of Christ. Here you now, I like that idea. I don't know if, we, if, it, if it's true, but it sounds good. Hey, Christian unity should be one of the highest priorities of every Christian. Christian unity should be a priority of every Christian, should be one of the highest priorities. Is Christian unity a priority anywhere within the body of Christ? Where, where do you see, hey, I, my priority is Christian unity. I, I, where is it? And if it's a priority, then why is there such a lack thereof? It's a high priority that we are unified, that we are one. However, we just haven't been able to pull it off. So is it a priority? And if it is a priority, why do we constantly fail at it? And if it isn't a priority, why isn't it a priority? Now, let's see if he offers something tangible. Again, I want something tangible, not just some theoretical that you're a believer, I'm a believer, therefore we're magically one, even though we don't agree on anything and we disagree on everything, somehow we're still one, so therefore unity is achieved in the most 
non tangible, practical way imaginable. That, that's the that's the that's the only solution ever offered in the Protestant world is we're one. Theoretically, just just somehow in our position, we're one. It, it has no bearing on anything in a practical way, and, and and I guess that that's going to have to be sufficient. I I let me state it again. I think the issue is the and I'm and I'm going to just constantly state this. We're, we can never fix the lack of unity within the body of Christ. It, that, that, that bridge has been burned. That bridge, we've crossed it. There's no getting back over. It's, so it's done. There's no ever going back. So that's never going to occur. But what we can do is that every each individual can focus on the unity they can try to be um, the unity they can try to, to promote and the unity they can try to bring within their own small local congregation or large local congregation. In other words, unity can only be achieved within each individual local church. It, it, there's no unity beyond that that you can even hope to even think about or even pretend that you care about because it's only within the local congregation. Now, you can try to find other believers that you're unified with. You can try to find that. But at, at, and at large, you know, you don't agree with most. So it, it has to be just within local churches. It has to be. It can't. There's no other. There's no other way that we anything else we try to achieve. It, 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 it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It's not going to work. That is broken. Let's see if he places this in the context of a local congregation or if he goes with this idea of the invisible body and somehow we're unified, even though we're not really unified. Let's see what direction he goes with this. You see his concerns. Think about this. This is the eve of his crucifixion. At this moment, more than any in his life, he had so much to think about and be troubled about. He had the cross ahead of him. Moments later, he would be in Gethsemane, and Scripture describes the agony that overwhelmed him there. And so the fact that unity among believers is what occupied his thoughts and his prayers at this particular point, it just underscores how absolutely crucial that truth is. It should make the pursuit of unity one of the highest goals of every Christian. Now, look at the text. Now, I'm just going to, is it the highest goal of every Christian? Is Christian unity the highest goal of every Christian? Is it, where, where does it rank in your goals? Of all your goals for your Christian life, where does Christian unity rank? And what does that even look like? My goal is Christian unity. Now I want you, I want you, because once again, we say all the right words. It's so different from saying the right words and doing the right words. If Christian unity is his highest goal, then why did he utterly attack and try to basically destroy someone who, who did, wasn't even really disagreeing, was simply going, hey, 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 I think you're misunderstanding imagined by John Lennon here. I think you're, you're, you're not necessarily being fair. <laughs> attack, 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 attack. Wow. I'm glad to see Christian unity as one of your highest priorities. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you 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 couldn't have just simply said, "Hmm, not so sure about this." Hey, let's talk about it in private. I mean, it could have been just an, and it, it could have been just an, but no. So I, it's one thing to say it's got to be our highest priority. Where do you see Christian unity being the highest priority 
of anyone within the body of Christ. I mean, it, it, we, we say, I, I get so frustrated so many times. So, so much of Christianity is just our, 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 our church answers. We know the right verbiage. We're supposed to say these things. I love fellow believers because I'm supposed to say that. Christian unity is the highest priority. That I'm supposed to say that. But does, does it actually have any tangible meaning in any practical way? Uh, and look, I'm not, I'm not just saying that about him. I'm saying it about me as well. It's easy to say the right words in right situations. It's far different doing the right things. Next, and notice that Jesus sees our unity with one another as the key to persuading the world of the truth of the gospel. Verse 20. I want you to hear that. Jesus sees our unity as the number one way of persuading the world of the gospel. I want you to think about that. If Christian unity is the number one way to persuade the world of the truth of the gospel, then what in the world? (laughs) What What are we persuading the world of? Because the world does not see unity. The world sees a church on every street corner. The world sees this, this group saying that group is wrong and that group is saying that group is wrong and they're saying this is right and this is the right in- interpretation. No, they're the wrong interpretation. They're right, they're wrong. That's all they see. So if, if Christian unity is the way to persuade the world of the truth of the gospel, then what, what, what's the answer here? What's the answer? I mean, Phil Johnson had a blog, uh, Pyromaniacs, I think is what it was called, and he attacked everyone. I mean, his blog was known for attacking this group and this group, and this guy's a false teacher, and this and this and this, and this is a false teacher. And false, I mean, he, he, I mean, he made lots of enemies. You didn't read his blog going, wow, such unity within the body of Christ. Wow, he, he agreed. He's so compassionate and merciful and gracious to other people. I mean, come on. If you know anything about him, you know that he's known for that. You know he's, he's sometimes referred to as the attack dog for John MacArthur or grace to you. So, so, I mean, this, this, it's kind of, it's kind of hilarious to listen to this. So how do we, how do we understand this? If unity should be the highest priority and unity is how we, how the world is convinced of the truth of the gospel, that all preaches so good. Well, then what do we do with all of the constant fighting and yelling and bickering and disagreeing and attacking? That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me. Those verses perfectly echo the idea of John 13, 35, which is where Jesus told his disciples, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the same idea. And it's an amazing thought. That our unity and our love for one another is the thing Jesus prayed 
would convince the world of the truth of the gospel. You know, he could have prayed that we would have power to work great miracles or raise the dead or, or call down fire from heaven. Wouldn't signs and wonders like that be powerful for convincing unbelievers of the truth of the gospel? Or what if he prayed that we'd be really smart and persuasive, full of philosophical knowledge and able to out-argue everybody in the world? That's not what he prayed for. And that isn't the means God chose. He wants our love and our unity with one another to be the most powerful proof of the gospel to the world. And that makes unity among Christians and love for one another one of the most sacred obligations we are charged with. Sin that breaks the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is not merely a sin against our brother. It's a sin against a watching world. And it's a sin against Christ himself. And that means that maintaining... And you want to just see the supposed unity. Look at the conflict and back and forth between Phil Johnson, the one preaching the sermon, and Julie Royce from the Royce Report. I think they, I think they both have each other blocked uh, on Twitter. Uh, just attack, back, forth, attack, attack, calling each other names. It, 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 it's, it's, been, or it's been just absolutely ridiculous to see. I mean, I mean, these are public things. These are public, nothing private here. These are public back and forth and attack and calling names. I mean, it's like childish behavior. So this is kind of interesting to hear like, okay, so once again, we, we fall so short of these, these are these great lofty concepts. And again, according to him, this proves whether you're saved or not saved. Well, once again, we're always going to find prove that we're not saved because we fall short of all of these things. But well, how do, how does this unity supposed to work when he's made a, he's had a long ministry of attacking people, disagreeing with people, condemning people. How do you reconcile that? our unity, maintaining peace in the fellowship and love with one another, that's at the very heart of our testimony to a watching world. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul said, it's better to offend an unbelieving brother by refusing to eat what he offers rather than to cause offense to a brother who has a weak conscience. He says, if you're faced with a choice where no matter what you do, you're going to offend one or the other, and and you're going to either offend the unbeliever or offend the believer offend the unbeliever. Why? Because it's a better testimony to that unbeliever to show love and deference to the weaker brother than it would be to avoid offending him. If you're in a situation where you're faced with that choice, you either offend the unbeliever who's a weak Christian brother or and there's no way to avoid offense to your unbelieving neighbor, you have to offend the unbeliever because your love for your brother is a better testimony to the unbeliever than if you avoided offense to him. It was Francis Schaeffer, I think, who called love for one another, our love for one another as Christians, the mark of the Christian. He said that's the the singular mark of the true Christian. He even wrote a book called The Mark of the Christian, and it was all about love for one another. And he suggested that Christian unity actually takes priority over all of our apologetic arguments in our defense of the faith. And I agree, because... Our love for one another is the the most powerful possible proof that the gospel is true.
And so in no way do I want to diminish the importance of the unity that Jesus is praying for here. However, this prayer for unity in John 17 is often misunderstood and misapplied. In recent years, this passage of Scripture has been hijacked by people whose motives are ecumenical unity. And I want to be very clear at the outset, ecumenical unity is not what Christ is praying for here. This is not a mandate to unite every group and every belief that is called Christian. And it's absolutely vital that we see that because the call for ecumenical unity, the kind of artificial unity where doctrine is set aside, that is one of the most influential attacks on the Christian faith today. And in fact, ecumenical unity is an attack on the kind of true unity that Christ is praying for here. But John 17 is a favorite passage among those who appeal for a kind of broad ecumenical unity, the ecumenical manifesto that was titled Evangelicals and Catholics Together, published back in the 1995 or thereabout. That document has had a massive influence on the evangelical movement, and it expressly appeals to this passage, John 17, and it goes so far as to suggest that the division between Roman Catholics and evangelicals is a itself a grievous sin against the unity that Jesus prays for here in John 17. And in effect, that document, it says that the Reformation itself was a sin against what Christ prayed for in John 17. And Roman Catholic apologists have picked up on that idea, and they exploit it as an argument against practically every principle of Christian doctrine. A famous Catholic apologist, Scott Hahn, he's a a convert to Catholicism, he used to be a Presbyterian pastor, and he claims that the proliferation of Protestant denominations proves that the Protestant reformers' principle of sola scriptura is a huge mistake, and he's popularized this argument. Here's what he says. I'll quote him exactly. Quote, do you suppose Jesus would say, well, once I give the church this infallible scripture, there really is no need for for any infallible interpretations of Scripture, the church can hold together with just the infallible Bible. Scott Hahn says, oh, really? In just 500 years, there are literally thousands and thousands of denominations that are becoming ever more numerous continuously because they only go with the Bible. He says it points to the fact that we need an infallible interpretation of this infallible book, don't we? Now, that's a favorite argument of Catholic apologists, and I always want to say, but who's going to interpret your infallible interpretation? Because Catholics don't agree amongst themselves about basic issues. It's a common problem, but that has become the go-to argument among Roman Catholic apologists. I love when Protestants say, well, Catholics don't agree on everything. Are you going to compare the supposed disunity within Catholicism with the disunity of the Protestant world? Are, are, are you really going? I mean, it's, it's like, well, see, y'all have got some disagreement. Look around into the Protestant world. There is literally no agreement on anything. And there's a new churches split, new denomination, denomination split. It's happening all the time. It's constant. It's never ending within the Protestant world. So at least instead of pointing to them going, well, you've got disunity, how about acknowledge, you know what, you're right. 
since the Protestant Reformation, it's ever increasing more and more groups, more and more denominations, more and more interpretations, more and more disagreement, more and more church splits. And it is a problem. And we have to own that problem. I don't know, understand why we just, no, no. Well, hey, they've got problems over there. So we're good. No, no. The problem is we can't get along on anything. That is a reality. We can't just act like it's, it's, it's all good. No, we have to address that. And if, if John 17 is telling us that Christian unity should be our highest priority and that Christian unity is the way to convince the world of the truth of the gospel, then we should be struck to the heart of the problems that are very present, not only within Protestant Christianity, within your life and my life and within your heart and my heart. They are convinced that the unity Christ prayed for in John 17, 21 is a kind of organizational solidarity that is incompatible with both denominations and independent churches. And so as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned, the only way true Christian unity can ever be achieved is when separated brethren, whom they call, that's what they call us, non-Catholic Christians, reunite with Rome under the authority of the Pope. Unless we recognize the Pope, they argue, there can never be true unity. Keith Fournier is a well-known Roman Catholic author who served for several years in a Protestant organization alongside Pat Robertson as the executive director of the American Center for Law and Justice, which is a role that constantly had him rubbing shoulders with Protestants, and he's a Roman Catholic, and he wrote a book called A House Divided, with a question mark at the end of the title, A House Divided, and he summed up the typical Roman Catholic perspective on Christian unity. He said this, quote, throughout Christian history, what was once intended to be an all-inclusive Catholic body of disciples has been fractured over and over. These fractures threaten to sever us from our common historical and doctrinal roots. I do not believe that such division... All right, someone just asked, can there be different denominations when the verse says to be as united as father and son, or am I misinterpreting the verse? I don't think you're misinterpreting the verse. I I don't... Look, (laughs) there... On one hand, okay, how can I say this? I think everything, I think everything in the New Testament would seem to have understood and called for some kind of a unity within the church, some kind of unity. I don't know if the the New Testament would even understand different denominations, that the churches were somehow unified in some way, shape, or form. And whatever came from the New Testament into what we see the early church, where you have these, the the churches coming together, you're having councils, dogmatic uh, decrees are given that are binding upon all the churches. Anyone who disagrees is anathema. There's this kind of almost like a, some kind of a unified concept. And then you can see everything that happens from out of those seven ecumenical councils. And then you can see, you can see the great schism between the East and the West, uh, Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodox. You can, you can, you can see some of the, the problems that emerge. You can see the, the decadence and the corruption of the church. But there is no question that once the Protestant Reformation happens, the dam breaks 
and then you end up with group after group after group after group after group after group because now it goes from an institutionalized authority, right? The church the church has the authority to now the individual has the authority. Now, each individual have, has the authority to interpret the Bible for themselves, and they determine whether what is being taught is true or false, and then they can go start their own group, and it just it spirals out of control. I don't know. I, 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 it would be hard for me to look at our current situation and go, that's what was intended by John 17, 21. What we see today, that... It, fits perfectly with what Jesus prayed for in John 17. I don't think you can say that what we see today fits anywhere close to what Jesus prayed for. Now you say, well, how, how do we under... I, there's, I will just say again, there's no way to get back to, I think, what was the... and the what should have been. What should have been was corrupted by us by human beings, sinful human beings, and we broke it, and there's no going back. So all we can do now is look to each individual congregation, and within that congregation, we can try to be of one mind, of one truth, of one faith, of one baptism within each individual church. I'm not saying that that will ever meet what I think John 17, 21 is calling for, but it's the all we can do. We can't, there's never going back. There's the, the ecumenical approach that, well, you know, either, either we go all go back to Rome. Okay. Well, that's never going to happen. Okay. We either all go back to Rome or we, we, we have some kind of ecumenical supposed a unity where we have to compromise doctrine and truth. That's not biblical. So there's no going back. So I, I will say, I don't know if, I, I don't know, I would argue that different denominations does not meet what John 17, 21 seems to be calling for. And there's no go, there's no fixing it. So all we can do is focus on what we can do within an individual church, what, what we can do within an individual congregation, what you can do in your congregation and what I can do in mine. I think we can then, uh, we can, beyond that, we can try to demonstrate love to fellow believers. To the but we know we're going to fall short. But I don't, I don't know if all the, I mean, again, depending on which number you go with, we know that many Catholic apologists claim the 30,000, 30,000, 33,000 different Protestant denominations. Many Protestant apologists argue, no, 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 it's not 30,000. So they quote 9,000, 10,000. I don't know how many different groups there are. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands with completely divergent and different truth claims that completely contradict one another. No way that fits John 17, 2021. No way, no way, no way. Christians were ever part of the Lord's intention, no matter how sincere or important the issues that undergirded the breaking of unity. He also says this, quote, Today the body of Christ is not one. It is divided. Too many of us fight over theology. We revel in our doctrinal purity, our ecclesiastical perfection, and then we look around us and wonder why the world has gone on without us, why it has stopped listening to us, and begun looking elsewhere for answers. He says, what will lead us out of our stupor? Now, if you listen carefully, I hope you notice how he sets up that argument so that what is the chief enemy of unity? 
theology. He sees doctrinal purity as something altogether incompatible with unity in the body of Christ. And that is, by the way, no longer a minority opinion. I think it perfectly reflects the prevailing mood of evangelicalism on the... And I can understand. Now listen, as much as I love theology, obviously my podcast is called Theology Central, and as much as I will defend and pursue and fight for doctrinal purity and theological clarity, I can clearly understand why many Christians come to the point going, you know what? I don't care about doctrine. I don't care about theology because all everyone ever does is fight, 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 argue, 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 argue. You can see why many have grown weary and tired of the theological battles and the theological wars, why people have grown just sick of it. A lot of people were growing tired of it, say, in the 1990s when we were having the worship wars and everyone was fighting over what music can and cannot be used in church and boom, 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 whatever. There's always, in whatever decade you find yourself, there's always some big fight happening within the church that's dividing the church and people are arguing and people do get finally just sick of it and go, you know, I'm tired of it. I'm tired. I'm tired of you fight and you claim this and you claim. Sometimes I get tired of it when I'll, someone will email me or something and I'll just be like, whatever. I, I just don't even care anymore because, because as soon as you like, well, no, no, the verse says this, and then, never mind, just, you know what, believe whatever you want. I don't even care anymore. Uh, sometimes if I'm preaching a sermon and someone starts disagreeing, I, when I was young, it was more like, no, I'm going to fight. Now I'm just like, I don't care. I literally don't believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You're going to believe whatever you want anyway. You're going to interpret the Bible any way you want anyway. It doesn't matter. I think a lot of people have grown tired of it. Now, you can argue, well, people people can't just blame theology. I understand you can't blame theology, but I think you have to acknowledge that the fact is nobody can agree on how to interpret anything. No one can agree on what theology is right and what theology is wrong. It becomes maddening, frustrating, discouraging, and and. Well, it's divisive. There's there's just no way to get around it. And I can't believe we're already over an hour. Well, let's just see if we can just take this. We'll have to come back and do another part on this. Let, let's just take it a little bit further. This whole matter of unity, people think doctrine, but that destroys our unity. And so they want to do away with doctrine altogether. And Keith Fournier goes on to suggest, he says this, he's not advocating a false non-denominationalism or superficial irenicism that denies the distinctives of doctrine or practice. That's the claim he makes, and I think he believes that, but I think he's self-deceived in saying that because notice, he is suggesting that doctrinal differences, no matter how important, those are his exact words, no matter how important, doctrinal differences should not cause organizational divisions. And he berates people who, in his words, fight over theology, argue for sound theology. And in fact, just a few pages before he, he wrote that, he expressed outrage at John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and Jim McCarthy because those three men years ago had met together and said they believed Roman Catholicism's rejection of justification by faith is doctrinal error. And he said, how dare you say that? So don't miss what he's really saying. He claims... He wants unity without a superficial glossing over of crucial doctrinal differences, and yet he cries foul when somebody wants to be specific about a doctrine that is at the very heart of the gospel message. The unity he wants 
is actually the same kind of unity the Roman Catholic Church has sought for hundreds of years. It's a unity where everyone who professes to be a Christian has to yield implicit obedience to papal authority, and where even individual conscience is ultimately subject to the Roman Catholic Church. And please note that if you want unity with, say, John MacArthur, you've got to go agree with John MacArthur. And if you want unity with Phil Johnson, you've got to agree with Phil Johnson. And if you want unity, I, 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 I love when Protestants whine about that. Well, Catholics just, the only way they want unity is you have to surrender your, your, your thoughts and your ideas to the Pope. Well, within the Protestant world, the only way I can have unity is I have to surrender my thoughts and my will to your group. Right. In other words, if I disagree with John MacArthur on lordship salvation, boom, I'm going to probably be called into question that I'm not saved. Right? I mean, it, 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 in fact, we could go on to some things MacArthur has said in regards to who do you vote for. It all it sounds very close that if I vote for a Democrat that I'm possibly not saved. So I have to agree with him. They have to go along with him. He becomes the pope. Protestants love to complain that Roman Catholics make you surrender to the Pope. Well, within the Protestant world, I've got to surrender to whoever the the Protestant Pope is of whatever particular group. And if I disagree with them, I'm anathema. I'm a I'm apostate. I'm a heretic. I may not even be saved. As my entire ministry was called into question by the man that we're listening to preach simply because I'm like, I don't know if you understand the lyrics to that song correctly. How dare you say that to me? Okay, never mind. I apologize. I, I should have never said anything. I should have remembered you're always right and everyone else is always wrong. So we, we didn't, we, 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 he didn't give us any idea of what this unity actually is. So we'll have to stop there. Let me grab a, a notebook here. We're stopping at the 21 minute, we'll just say 21 minute mark. 21 minute mark with 37 minutes left. And we'll have to finish this soon. We'll try to finish this today, one way or the other. Um, there we go. Wow. That, that took a, that, I didn't know, see that now that's, there's a good thing, put it this way. It's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing that I just found the very first sermon I found doing a search for John 17, 21. I had no idea who it was. I just found it, downloaded it, hit play and boom, ended up being Phil Johnson where I have some history interaction with. That was not the plan because if I would have saw who that it was, I probably would not, I would not have, uh, I wouldn't have chosen the sermon because there is that, that connection that some can say make me somewhat biased. But I just do find it interesting that, um, once again, we have this, we, we have this discussion about how important unity is, but no, I find it fascinating. Unity is important as he disagrees with people who have a different perspective on unity. So, so he's disagreeing with people who have a different perspective on unity to talk about how important unity is. So even when we talk about unity, we find ourselves with, with disunity and disagreement. It's just, it just, it's just, it's so ridiculous how disunified the Christian world is that we can't even talk about unity without disagreeing on the subject. 
because that's the way it works. I wish we could have gotten further, but it will be interesting to see what his ultimate solution is to this problem. What is this unity? What is it? How does it actually exist? What does it actually, does it actually mean anything? We will see. All right. You can email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I apologize if there there was lack of clarity anywhere within this one hour and seven minutes of discussing things. I'm still not 100% from COVID. And what's frustrating is there's still positive COVID tests happening in this house today. So that is... Very frustrating. That means we we can't have in-person services again tonight. So that is beyond frustrating. But um, I I hope that, um, well, I'm going to do what I can today. And hopefully that even any lingering symptoms I still have will not cause any problems in us trying to get something positive done today. But this is a very important subject. Even though others may be tired of me talking about it, I'm going to... Follow this subject until I feel like we've done as much as we can with it because there's a, there's just so, there's a disconnect between John 17, 21, where Jesus is like, I pray that you're one, and the reality around us. And that has to bother us. So we are going to continue to discuss it until maybe we have, and we're going to listen to lots of different perspectives so that we can hear different answers and see if we can come up with something. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here at some point today. God bless.